after meeting with uh, many of you today and over the last few days, I, uh, I wanted to begin tonight, this is based on uh, hearing what you had to say in the interview uh, groups and how many of you have spoken about the, um, the flow of our stories. Well, of course, we've been talking about it up here, but it's been coming pretty regularly and how challenging it is to deal with the stories that play through our mind. And I thought of one of my favorite poems from, from a Tibetan teacher named Noshul Kempo Rinpoche, where that kind of speaks to the, tonight's topic and also to your predicament dealing with, um, with thoughts. The poem goes like this, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, <laughs> like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury, relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. So others have spoken about your predicament, and I have a feeling you have more understanding of this poem after sitting for a few days. And I'm not sure that anyone's been beaten helpless yet by karma and neurotic thought. Um, but you know what it's like to be buffeted by the waves. And it's really in, in some ways in the beauty of practice that we can begin to make that profound shift, which is the shift from, from being buffeted and carried along by the different waves of thoughts to simply recognizing their appearance in our mind and recognizing their disappearance. And so as you reported during the interviews, sometimes a little bit critical of yourself for having been so caught up in thought, what I heard was how many moments that you had that you were mindful of having been thinking or in the middle of a thought or just as a thought was occurring and you got very familiar with your, with your stories. And then sitting with you, and this has been happening to me a lot lately and I haven't quite been able to figure it out. And, and I've mentioned on a few retreats, but sitting with you in both in the hall here and in interview groups, it may be because I have a, a three-year-old daughter who somehow I've become so captivated by her suchness, her uniqueness, her unique individuality and expression of life, and sit often in awe of her. Uh, I've begun to kind of feel in awe with each person that I meet and a kind of appreciation for uh, your, uh, your unique, your suchness, your unique expression of life. And it dawns on me often as I'm, as I'm sitting with people, as I'm sitting with you, that whoever you are imagining yourself to be is so different than your magnificent essence that's presenting itself in spite of yourself, in spite of the way you're thinking about yourself. And I think it is, uh, the Buddha was not so concerned, I don't think, 
with this, this natural and perfect expression of life, as Mark was saying last night about each of us is, is um, what's the expression? You said it. <laughs> Perf- we are perfect just as we are. Thank you, Mark. Pre- appreciate your help. <laughs> but we could all do with a little improvement. Thank you. Now I forgot where I was. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. Practice. The Buddha was not so concerned about this perfect expression that we are. In a sense, the, 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 the expression that we are outside of our ideas, just our, our suchness, our, you could put it in a kind of technical way, kind of our functional being, that we all are just fully human. We breathe, we eat, we chew, we, we clean, we think, we hear, we smell, we have these sense doors, we... we have formed in unique ways based on the myriad causes and conditions that have presented themselves in our life to make each of us so unique. No other possible way could we be up to this moment. This is not the, the concern of the Buddha, is our unique expression. What was the concern of the, of the Buddha and really the promise of practice is to, is that view of ourselves, what the Buddha called sakyaditi, self-view, that view of ourselves, that fictional view that plays out in our minds. And whatever view you have, as Anna was quoting the other night, the, the quote from, from Anagarika Munindra, where he said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Any view you have about yourself or your mother, for that fact, for that matter, is fiction. And yet, it is precisely these views that often become the throne, the, the, um, the pedestal or the statue or the, whatever it is that we bow to every day with full conviction that that one who we imagine ourselves to be in our mind is, the, is who we really are. And it's so interesting, even as, we, as I sit with you right now, and I look at you, and I can't see what you're thinking, you can't see what I'm thinking. And, and if any of us, for a moment, just suspends our view of ourselves after our last thought of ourself has ceased and before the next one arises, What happens in the room? What happens to that sense of, of that separate me that has somehow gotten, gotten alienated, gotten cut off from the flow of life? What happens immediately when we simply stop for a moment? I know for me, I feel naturally a little more connected, connected with myself, connected with you, And when I say connected with myself, it's not connected with the idea of myself. I'm connected with nature as it's expressing itself. 
felt sense. And then it's, then my consciousness, free of that idea for a moment, is filled with you, and perhaps yours is filled with me and everyone else. And this is really, in a sense, life. This is life. So different from our ideas about it. So as Mark was saying that we are perfect, um, just as we are, it's something that we can begin to touch in moments. You may not think of it this way, but in this, those simple moments that you're just being, doing what you're doing, being mindful, present, there is no evidence for anything especially wrong with you. In fact, there's no evidence for anything wrong with you. And in this way, we can come face to face, just at moment after moment of just a simple attention to this direct experience of our okayness. And I'll talk about this more as we go through the evening. But the second part was, and we can all use a little bit of an improvement. And this really speaks to the the gradual evolution of our practice to begin to notice all of the ways that we have become confused and deluded and have, um, have, mistake, have mistaken our identity for that one, that fictional one who we have imagined ourselves to be. And it is a gradual process of getting to know all the myriad ways that we um, are triggered by the six experiences that go around and around and around, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, the thinking, how we're triggered by a a seed moment and how that then takes off into how that, from that that seed moment, it triggers a cascade of of creative, uh, a creative flow of our thoughts and how, when that goes unnoticed, this entire profound drama gets set in motion with the imagined me as the center of the universe, the, the character, the, the star of the show. And if the, of course, if these thoughts are recognized for what they are, they, they liberate themselves. They're, they're just thoughts. But when they go unnoticed, as one teacher, Dujum Rinpoche, says, these thoughts spread out into what he calls ordinary thinking. And he translates this as the chain of delusion. When, and again, this is when they go unnoticed. So the good news about our practice is we become collected and composed enough as we sit here, both to connect with that, that suchness, that unique expression, that perfection, that you are before you can think. And that settling, that connecting and, com- and that, um, that collecting and composing, and this is where we use the, the power of mindfulness, and we use the, the capacity of our mind 
to gather to this point, to this single point of here and now, and to sustain that connection, we do that again and again and again. In the, in the teachings, this is called the cultivation of, of two qualities that we have, everybody has in their mind. They're, in Pali, they're called vitaka and vichara. The gathering together, the connecting. That's why I, I think in the instructions this morning, I called it the love muscle because it's the same thing that allows us to connect with each other right now or connect with another person or to connect with a flower or a tree. It's that connecting with the felt sense of being present and then sustaining that connection. Out of that, our mind becomes steadier and steadier. And as you probably have sensed, even through these few days, your mind may have gotten a little bit more open a little bit more able to pick up on the tones of the, the subtlety of sound, sounds a little bit more vivid, and I'm sure the taste of the food has come alive. Tell me if I'm just alone here. Is it true? And of course, the, the myriad sensations that flow through our body have become quite a lot more clear, and the smells and, and the, the impact, the impingement of sounds and everything are, are just so much more alive. This is, comes from this, this quality of connected, of collectedness. And it's also likely that you've been able to see for yourself how without any prompting at all, with completely unbidden, that just trying to be present, that whole drama starts flowing. And it just and it starts with a, a seed moment, you could say, of, let's say, a sound. Some people, some, someone said they started to feel some aversion today to somebody who was making a lot of noise next to them. And, and I'm sure one, it's, if it isn't one thing, it's another. And this is not to say that you shouldn't feel the way you do. Everybody, you know, this is just what happens. But the seed moment of that contact, that sound is heard, whatever that association is in the mind of pleasant or unpleasant, the feeling tone. And then if it goes unnoticed, there's a kind of liking or disliking. And that liking and disliking, that little charge, with every kind of, every moment of liking and disliking, I don't know if you find this interesting, but I do. It's kind of to see, to deconstruct how it actually happens. That moment of, of liking and disliking produces a little charge. That charge produces a little contraction. And that contraction, that pressure, spawns a kind of compulsion to think about it, to analyze it, to evaluate it, and off we go. And what has really happened? All that's really happened is one of six experiences. And that's all that's ever happened. The rest is a story that we tell about it. This whole experience of even hearing this talk right now is really just the flow of six sense doors, six sense experiences, rolling on and on and on and on and on. But so quickly, our mind constructs this whole reality, this whole conceptual shared view of reality. And this is taken to be the, the truth of things. And it certainly has a conventional truth. I am giving a discourse, and you are listening, and we're all meditators. But this is, even that's just a story. And even the story, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a survivor, I'm a, I'm a whatever it is, 
On one hand, it has a conventional truth. On the other hand, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, where's the evidence? (laughs) So that we can begin to see the difference between that suchness of each moment, that direct experience of the unfolding of these six sense experiences, and this phantasmagorical display or story that flows through our mind with ourselves as the star. But the most amazing thing is that this, is, this story is made up of what uh, has become some kind of conventional knowledge that was supposedly born of some study at Stanford that we have 65,000 thoughts every day and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> and yet, when, we are, when, when you or I become lost in thought and I wake up to having been lost in thought, I say, oh, I shouldn't have been thinking, as though there was a little person in there, the imagined me, who started thinking. And then, of course, once I've created that little person who was the one who thought, and then he, he, in this case, becomes the one who shouldn't have thought. And then pretty soon, a whole narrative flows about uh, the imagined meditator, who <laughs> is maybe the one and only one here who's, who's persistently getting lost in thought, and everyone else is getting enlightened. And then it becomes the seed of, of one of our one of our uh, trains, one of the hindrances of doubt, where it then becomes, you know, something's wrong here. Something's wrong with me. This happens every time I try everything. And what started as a thought that appeared and disappeared turns into an indictment of my whole existence. (laughs) The good news is we can begin to make that shift from just being carried along by this to waking up. And it, it's, it's really in the momentum, in the habit of being present, just keeping, continuing to drop those little moments, drop those, um, drop in those moments of mindfulness again and again and again, appreciating those moments where we are awake and where there is that, that pure knowing, that pure essence that you are before you think, even sense right now. See if you can, for one moment, accept yourself, what you, what you are outside of, the, of an idea. Regardless of your historical circumstances, So it is amazing, the Tibetans have a word called emaho, how amazing, that these 65,000 thoughts that are just thinking themselves, coming completely uninvited, can somehow get culled together and into a, a consistent narrative about an imagined person. And it's called me, and, and then how, it, how they have the capacity because of what the Buddha called avijja, 
or ignorance or kind of misidentification, to take all those thoughts personally and believe that they're really describing accurately a real person. It's amazing. The Buddha talked about this spawning of this compulsion to think that is spawned from these six sense experiences. And he called that compulsion to think, called it papancha. It's actually a kind of an onomatopoeic word, papancha. It's like a papancha. And he talked about this, this it's often translated as proliferation, but I, I brought a, a, de, a couple definitions thanks to, to, I got these from Anna. And essentially the, the first definition, which kind of captures it, it says the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. And then the second, uh, perhaps a little more embellished version, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary <laughs> that obscures the bare data of experience or cognition. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. So the Buddha talked about three, three or four main ways, three or four main kinds of, of compulsion to think or prapancha or proliferation. The first one he called tanha, which is I spoke about the other night as the second noble truth, the cause of, of, of dukkha, the cause of dissatisfaction is this, this um, deep pattern of wanting things to be different than they are. But in this way, he talked about tanha, called it tanha papancha, which is the, it's the proliferation of thoughts based you know, around some kind of desire and how we can create worlds in our mind of desire. And the other night I spoke of the, what we do on the, the aversion side of tanha papancha the, in the form of what, I call the, what we call the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where our mind just takes off about someone and some, somebody who did something. The reverse is true in terms of tanha papancha. It's called the VR. For those of you who are new to this scene, that means Vipassana romance where there's someone who we catch out of the corner of our eye or we see them, whatever it is about them, lights our fancy. And within an instant, our mind just generates this fantasy of mating and marriage and travel and children. And, and of course, it, as it fades, it, leads to the, it can lead all different directions. But to be able to bear witness to this pattern and the good news about one of the beauties of noble silence is you can begin to see your mind do this and see how unbidden it is and how it just happens. And that shift from being just carried along by this to having that collectedness and the reflective mind shine on it begins to loosen the, the power and the grip of that particular narrative, that self-story, that version of Sakyaditi. I brought along a, a poem that, um, that Jack Kornfield 
shared with a few of us from a fellow named um, George Bilger, something like that. His poem is called Unwise Purchases, and you can just get the feeling, and you can think of your own version of this. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The box set of complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread. This is a long poem, so hang in there. (laughs) The French-cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet, and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French-cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, (laughs) they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. (laughs) But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads... (laughs) who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming (laughs) has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately to Castilian Spanish, in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So much selfing around desire and fantasy and to be able to you know, on one hand, it's been a tremendous, as you can see for him, partly a tremendous source of pleasure. And so it's not so easy for us to uh, relinquish our grasping, to open up that tight fist that holds so tenaciously to our desires and the expectations that they will, will deliver that sense of freedom and ease and well-being that we hope. Uh, but we begin to get a sense of the unreliability when you begin to notice them uh, more clearly. And 
in the face of practice. The second kind of papancha that the Buddha spoke about, he called uh, a ditti papancha, which is the, the proliferation of thoughts around our ideas and opinions. And, <clears throat> and this could be any idea of opinion. I told the story the other night about all the different views and opinions I had about that car that was driving in front of me and the, and the way they were driving and the way they were this and the way they were that. And, and that just comes completely unbidden. And of course, to be able to, to not to see that, I'm bound, I'm, it, I literally incarnate in, as the one who feels a particular way about a particular thing. When I recognize it, when I make that slight shift from, from that vortex of identification, that sakyaditi, the self-view, to noticing it as the thoughts of papancha, the, thought, the views and opinions, again, it loses a lot of its stickiness. That's easy to do with things like the car driving in front of me. But many of our views and opinions are embedded in that little story, the composite view of that story that plays through our mind. And it goes something like, I'm to this, I'm to that. These are just opinions. These are views and opinions. I am too controlling. I am too heavy. I'm too lazy. I'm too, what's your version? Anybody willing to say out loud? I'm too intense. Too bossy. These, these views and opinions that have an approximation on reality, but they get so embellished with what uh, one of our one of the um, teachers who many people here have sat with, Katie Byron, called embellished to the point of making a case for the prosecution, <laughs> where it becomes so believable that I am too of something that pretty soon we're living through the lens of that virtual view, that fictional view of ourselves as to this or to that. Again, where is the evidence for that right now? What are we in one moment without that view that plays most frequently in your mind? It's so easy to take any little view based on what's happening in our life. I'm t you know, we've been traumatized or we've been hurt or something. It's very easy to take on the opinion, I'm too damaged, I'm too hurt, I'm too this. And to follow this outwardly leads to a kind of cascade of, okay, if this is what I am, if I'm too something, what, you can think while I'm talking whatever your version is. If I'm too something, then what do I have to do? I have to either give up or become something else. And that attachment to that view and opinion spawns a, a, um, an identity that then, that identity in my mind that is then bound in time. 
I am now that, that person, here and now, the one, and you may even feel this, the one you imagine yourself to be right now as you hear this. I am that person who's not quite okay, and I need to somehow do something, go somewhere to become okay. And what happens to my experience if I'm not okay right here, and my okayness is somewhere down the road. What happens to the present moment? What's that? It's lost. It's colored with a sense that it's, it's somehow not enough. Then what happens to the future? Is there one? Of course not. It's an idea. It's a story that arises in the present moment that we call it future, and then throw it somewhere in front of us. And then, of course, if, if that imagined future holds the secret to my getting better, then I start to feel, and I don't know if this is true about you, but I start to feel a little anxious because there's always the possibility that I won't feel better in the future. Meanwhile, my okayness, that suchness, that you are right here and now, before you remember that cherished idea, that suchness is, is lost. And I've, I've, my whole body and everything has formed around this, this idea that the present's not okay, the future may not be okay, and then I start worrying. And then I start pressuring. What's next? What's going to happen at the end of the day? What's going to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next year? That becomes the, the source of my sense of well-being. And then I'm tight, I'm contracted. It's possible to begin to see this as just a story. The story of fear, the story of worry. All spun, spawned from a basic view and opinion that I'm somehow not okay. In, um, on many retreats, I've, I've done an exercise, and maybe we could do it for a few moments, where I invite you to, uh, I will invite you to pick up whatever your, we'll, t we'll just take one version of that view. I'm too much, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm not enough. I'm not okay the way I am. That's the, that's the, the general one. Any of you feel that from time to time? <laughs> so normally, we will, either, we will either go out of ourselves in search and kind of lose our vitality as Sri Nisargadatta says, uh, how do, what does he say? <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten. This is what happens when you try to memorize quotes. Um, we lose our sense of vitality. The present is very vital. It's as when we connect with the present, it's as though we connect with a kind of resource, a, uh, an aliveness. And the past and the future, when we're lost in our mind, is mental. And so it tends to, our energy, that sense of vitality begins to wane. 
So we tend to go into the past, go into the imagined future, or um, mostly in the future. In the past, we tend to start trying to figure out how we got to be. And sometimes it's very useful. How did I get to be so not okay? And all of us have stories, have beautiful, painful, personal stories that give a great indication for, and that we can actually learn from and get some degree of relief from understanding what the causes and conditions that led us to whatever degree we can know what causes and conditions led us to feel the way that we do. But that still, in some ways, reinforces the identity. It doesn't necessarily cut right to the core of the identity, the view and opinion that I'm not okay. So a teacher of mine, H.W.L. Punjaji, invited the people who sat with him, and I bring this to you from him, to, to take one of those views, like I'm not okay the way I am, and to, to not to go to the past to find it, but to really see in this moment, as we're sitting here tonight, to see, to recognize from where this idea arises from, to find the source of this idea, not the source historically, but the, how this appears in our mind. And so we take the idea, I'm not okay the way I am, and we begin to slowly unwind it. So we see, we can take the I am off the end of the sentence and just hang out with the feeling of I'm not okay. And you can just let yourself feel what your version of not okay is. See if you can bring that identity and the feeling that goes with it into your mind right now. Not asking you to be a glutton for punishment, just, a, just an experiment. I'm not okay. So let's just keep winding the feeling of I'm not okay back to its source. So let's remove the word okay. And we're left with the sense I am not. It's amazing the power of that word okay, isn't it? Unnoticed, that word can spawn so much contraction. Not okay. Even the word not is fine. But let's just unwind the not. And we're left with I am. And just feel that sense of I am. Already I'm feeling better. Just sense I am. And let's just keep winding it to its source and remove the am. And just stay with the sense of I. I is not particularly problematic. That unique expression that we can naturally call I as a center point, a vortex of uniqueness. feeling tone, and just feel that I for a moment. And then with the full um, freedom at any moment, you will anyway, but to pick it up again, but just for a moment, remove the I and see what that view is made of.
and see what's left. What immediately is felt in that moment free of that cherished view? Anybody willing to say just one word what happened? Peace. What? Peace? Awareness. Awareness. Connectedness. Connectedness. Space. 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 Scary. Scary. Thank you. Oneness. Oneness. Contraction. Contraction. Freedom. Freedom. Breath, simplicity. When you sense that, any evidence for that view, for that way you normally think about yourself? As Anna asked the other night, using the questions of Katie Byron, she says, to ask the question, is that view, is it true? And what are you? Who would you be without that? Again, the possibility of our practice, of awareness shining through, is to both rest in that, in that nature, you could say that's no nature, that is outside of these ideas, but also to be able to shine that light of awareness on these different views and recognize them as views, recognize them as, as self-ideas, as sakyaditi. Because most of our views are are based on the past. And as Punjaji likes to say, you need the past to suffer. <laughs> you need nothing to be free. He says the boulders of the past rest on your chest and inhibit your life and your freedom. Freedom waits, but we're usually busy doing something else. But if you, once you find the source of that thought, that I thought, um, you will see that you, that you are, um, that conviction that you are not the fullness uh, will begin to whittle away and you will recognize yourself as the fullness. And as Derek Walcott so beautifully puts in his poem called Love After Love, he says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your, at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. 
Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So we have tanha papancha, the proliferation around desire. We have ditti papancha, the proliferation of, of um, views and opinions. And tonight I focused on those fundamental views of, and opinions about ourselves. And then there's really what I was speaking more about was the third kind of papancha called mana papancha, which is the, the proliferation or compulsion to think uh, about ourselves in the, it's often translated as conceit. Mana is translated as conceit. And in the Buddha's teachings, conceit means putting ourselves above, below, or equal to others. <laughs> Ever do that? <laughs> and this is classically experienced in the, what sometimes feels like when it comes unbidden and, and unseen for a while feels like the plague of the comparing mind. It can be so painful, as you probably have noticed and, and get more clear about. And if, if experiencing the comparing mind on retreat is not the doorway to mercy and compassion, I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, you see, it just comes. It's that tenacious attempt for the the... Um, imagine self to find some kind of uh, angle that puts oneself in a safe above, below, or equal position somehow to, to make ourselves okay and how our mind just generates so much thinking around that. A very kind of lighthearted version of this um, uh, comparing mind kind of papancha, I wanted to share this passage from, takes a few minutes, from, from Ed Brown in his, in his piece called Biscuits Beyond Compare. <laughs> when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits, one from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. <laughs> For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped on the can on a corner of the counter and popped it open. <laughs> then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on a pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about biscuit, what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? 
People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues eating one after another, but to me, they, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shining, a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. <laughs> Those, these occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize that your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only in the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. <laughs> then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, unfathomable, a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As meditators, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew that the biscuit meditator looked like a calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, that's our friend James Barris, said was, looking good. <laughs> We've all done it, trying to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent, trying to attain perfection, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say. Wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? Handle each ingredient with sincerity and wholeheartedness. The results will take care of themselves. Savor them. So, of course, if we follow these streams, these virtual versions of ourselves that form into this high drama that, that plays only in our mind, in some fundamental way, nothing has happened again except those six experiences, ever. But when we follow that, the present moment becomes, as Eckhart Tolle says, becomes either a means to an end, an obstacle, or an enemy. And we lose that contact with the beautiful suchness of ourselves as we are, of life as it's unfolding, and caught in some image of making perfect Pillsbury biscuits. So I speak of this tonight, I'll just reiterate, to, to highlight and to uh, perhaps uh, encourage uh, to not in any way to judge what goes through your mind, judge any of the patterns of, of confusion and misidentification, to have nothing but mercy and compassion for how, how you came to experience what you do. All of us have come with our uh, forming identities around our religious faith or our gender or our sexual orientation or our racism or our, our shape or color or size or form. And, and so quickly that produces that composite version that plays in our mind that, and our, our life starts acting out of that so innocently. 
that as you notice that, just um, be kind, and, but be vigilant, because this is what our minds do, and it is possible to wake up out of this. This is what the, the Buddha, why he said, if it was not possible, I would not ask you to do this. And it's so clear, even in these four days, that, that this moment, that these moments, these empty, open moments that we have, every moment being empty and open, that our minds can be shaped and trained. And, and even the fact that you've quieted down over these four days, even the, even the fact that you've had this whole drama play through your mind shows that there is, and the fact that you notice more of it is the, the fruit. It's not by accident. It's the fruit of having stopped enough to notice it. So whatever seeds we plant in this open present moment becomes our future uh, experience. And so, as, as Ed Brown says, treat it with sincerity, this present moment. Keep putting those drops in the bucket of both appreciating your suchness, your okayness, your openness, and see that you are nothing that you can really describe. But being that nothing that you can really describe, being open and for a few moments at least in the span of your life, free of that preoccupation with that internal drama, you can see that maybe being indescribable and not anything in particular, you're full of everything. As you know, the words of Kala Rinpoche where he said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and you are that reality. And when you understand this, you'll see that you're nothing. And I would fill in nothing that can be described. And being nothing, you are everything. That's all. And our friend Nisargadatta puts it this way. He says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. Let's just sit for a moment and I will, because I've given many discourses like this before, I like to end it with a passage from the, from the words of Neem Karoli Baba about that inclusiveness, that, that sense of connection that we have with everything when we step out of our self-ideas. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears, oh, taking away my fears. Thank you for your kind attention.
This talk was given by Mark Holman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 22, 2007. It is an offering of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.